This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hello, Scott. Hello, Waleed. Can I, before we get underway, can I mention mm. a little bit of exciting news that we've got coming up next week? Uh, you can. Or yes. do you want to? No, no, no. I, it sounds I like, like I just... hearing the excitement in your voice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, over the course of the last year, people who regularly listen to the show would know that we try to turn our attention from time to time to, uh, let's just call them cultural objects of supreme importance uh, or cultural objects that have been constructed with a, a clear intention to reward multiple viewings and to endure, to last. So not just little sort of flash in the pan, momentary hits, but something that are meant to, what do we say, Waleed? Invite a deeper viewing. And then you find that when you do watch, read, listen more attentively, more carefully, you pick up things that you never could have imagined. So on. you're trying to be too specific. I Am just I? say things that, yeah, I, I just like to say things that bear the minefield treatment. Ah, all right. Do we have to trademark that, do we? With TM no, we don't. But field? the good thing about that is it sounds like it means something, but it doesn't. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you know how I feel about words that sound like they're supposed to mean something, but don't. So, so anyway, anyway, we've, um, you could say that around this time last year when we did the HBO, the first three seasons of the HBO series Succession, that maybe we were getting into comedy, but it's not really comedy, is it? Well, next uh, week. Well, oh, that's a very good question, is it? Uh, by the way, uh, the final series. I don't know if that is coming about to come out. Does that mean we have to do that again at some point? Let's see what it's like. Uh, I don't I quite see how season three of Succession can be topped, actually. I kind of get the feeling, one of the problems with the show is that it kept, it kept raising the stakes, putting characters in seemingly existentially risky situations. And then because of, due to backroom deals or negotiations or just because of kind of narrative indolence, allowing those things to dissolve and allowing other things to take over. I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I, I can feel that a little bit of energy is coming out of the show, but okay. no such problem for the show we're doing next week. <laughs> is that fair to say? Well done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So between now and next Tuesday, the 16th of March, when it first appears on the Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts or the show I think you is mean Thursday, the 16th of What March. did I say? I think you said Tuesday. Did I say Tuesday? Anyway, Thursday yeah. the 16th, of course. Mm. Uh, and the 19th of March, which of course is Sunday when we go to air, um, we would strongly urge you to avail yourself of the 12 miniature masterpieces, uh, as John Cleese himself referred to them, self-contained little farces that comprise the two seasons of Faulty Towers from 1975 and 1979. It's a show that we both love. It's a show that we've both discovered, I think it's fair to say, Willie, really surprising things by paying a little bit closer attention to it. And um, it's going to be a great show next week. I think we're going to learn a lot from it, and um, I think the audience is going to enjoy it. Uh, I'm so excited. This was your suggestion, and I'm really glad that you've done it. And the great thing about it is there aren't that many episodes. Each episode takes its toll. I'll tell you that. It does, does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. For me, it's the difference between Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Seinfeld, you can just watch endlessly. Mm -hmm. Curb Your Enthusiasm exhausts you. Mm. And so you can only get through an episode or two. And then well, it's... what surprised me is I couldn't re-rewatch Faulty Towers without pad and paper. That doesn't surprise me at all. That's, that's no, very you. It is very yeah. me. Anyway. Let's do today, shall we? Yeah. Are you going to okay. set us up? No, no. You, <laughs> okay. you're, the, you're the guy who sets up. So. Am I, am yeah. I really? All right. Well, what are we doing? What are we not doing today? Um, it's funny, well, it's something that you and I have talked about on multiple occasions, but I don't think we've ever really brought into the gamut of the minefield uh, is the former federal government, namely the coalition's um, scheme for recovering what were purported to be fraudulently paid welfare payments, what's now come to be known as the robo-debt scheme. Uh, there is, of course, after the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, an announced it in August last year, there is a Royal Commission underway. Uh, Waleed, you've, as part of your work, <laughs> you would have to be following what happens uh, in that Royal Commission fairly frequently. 
I've ducked in and out of it, to be perfectly honest, not because of lack of interest, but because I found some of the stories that have come to light as a result of it almost unbearable to listen to. Uh, I also have an allergic reaction to bureaucratic and political prevarication and ass-covering. Um, and I think whenever a program reaches a point where everybody is, a, is abandoning it and now trying to demonstrate that they were less culpable at the time, now that this thing has been abandoned, it, it just becomes an unwelcome opportunity, I think, for partial truth, half-truth, like I said before, prevarication. Um, and I always wonder, I always worry that apart from the final report that is produced by royal commissions, just how much justice, just how much satisfaction uh, from those who uh, really did suffer at the hands of a contemptuous scheme for debt recovery, uh, recovery of debts which weren't debts at all, as a matter of fact. Mm. Well, in many cases, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and importantly, with no real means of redress... So the, the, the problem, there's so many problems. One of the ma most maddening problems, I think, of the robo-debt scheme was its automated nature. That's right. So it was set up to be immediately dismissive and unanswerable. Here is what you owe us. And if you want to challenge this, you'll find it incredibly difficult <laughs> to engage an actual human being on this. So, you know, there's a reason that um, Computer Says No, that, that line from Little Britain, yeah. um, the recurring sketch in Little Britain, caught on so much. And it's because we've all had that experience. But when you multiply that by the power of the state and, the, you know, and, and raise it to the degree of those people who are most desperate, then you end up with something whose horror compounds very quickly. I think. Yeah. So, so can we take a couple steps back, though? Because we're not, I mean, RoboDebt is the thing that has gotten us going this week. What we don't want to do, I think it's fair to say, is we don't want to pile on. Um, there's exactly nobody who is defending the online compliance initiative now. I mean, there is some language mm. that's surrounding it, which I'll, I'll confess I find very, very funny. I mean, funny in the sense that there are certain tragedies that are just so ludicrous. Uh, that one cannot help but laugh. When, when I came across the line in a particular report that I read that said that the Morrison government received advice in August 2019 that the online compliance initiative was insufficiently legal. Mm -hmm. I actually found the term insufficiently legal kind of horrible. There is a simpler term for that, right? Yeah. I mean, anyway. So, do you know what I do? You know what I suspect it is. Can I just say it before I say this? Mm. I'm with you. Now I will explain where I think that sort of thing comes from. Mm -hmm. So, when lawyers give advice, they are very often working in fields of uncertainty, mm. where what they are trying to do is assess what they think a court would decide in a situation where this goes to court. And very often that's grey. And so what a lawyer is being asked to do is to assess the risk of, well, not illegality is not actually the right word, um, but whether something is un, unlawful or ultra-virus or something mm. like that. The, mm. the government doesn't have power to do this. It's not as though it's criminal or something like that, but just that the government isn't empowered for this. And so in assessing the risk of that, you will sometimes find legal advice is presented in a kind of grey language. Mm. So when you say something is insufficiently legal, that sounds to me, and I don't know, but that sounds to me like a lawyer saying, I can't tell you for sure that it's not legal, but I think it's likely enough that it's not legal that I would say it's insufficiently legal for you to proceed. Yeah. In, in this particular context, it was that further legislation is needed in order to bring this particular scheme up to the bar of full legality. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be crass about this. And like I said, the point of this discussion that we want to have today is not to pile on onto something that is already at the center of a royal commission. There's nothing we can say here that can contribute to the hard work that that royal commission has to do or the importance of the final report that that royal commission will produce. But it does seem to me that there are a number of things that the robo-debt scheme was symptomatic of. There are certain things that were wrong with the way in which that scheme was implemented 
as a, as a political measure, as something that a state does, that I think need to be diagnosed quite properly and carefully. And then once we see those things clearly, I think that tells us something about both the nature of political obligation generally, but also about what it means for the state to have a particular duty of care for people. And it's just interesting that while we often regard what took place with the robo-debt scheme as being uncommonly callous or heavy-handed or uh, contemptuous in its very automation, and, and sorry, that many people who suffered then from the robo-debt scheme really could have used a human voice or human touch or human contact in order to understand the peculiarities of their situation uh, and to try to help them to some more human resolution. Uh, so all of those things are given. But I think one of the things that's interesting to me, Willie, is that we don't often, outside of state-run institutions or things like state-run aged care facilities, say, we don't often think about politics or the state as having a particular duty of care to people. We can think about a kind of fundamental political obligation to do no harm to the citizens that are under one's care. But we don't often think about that. That is a negative thing, isn't it? What would it mean then to have a positive duty of care to people who are peculiarly vulnerable within difficult circumstances? So what I thought is by giving a bit of attention to the robo-debt scheme and what we're learning from it, what's come to light through it, we can actually see something, I think, uh, richer, fuller about the nature of our obligations to one another, about what it is to respond in a manner that is genuinely human to people who are in conditions of sort of extremists or else who suffer from particular forms of vulnerability that go beyond the merely material. And if I can just sort of put a little asterisk next to that, can I come back to what it might mean for people to be suffering from conditions of vulnerability that go beyond the, the material? I think that's actually at the heart of what it is that we're talking about, but I think we probably have to do other things first. Okay, so I, yeah, depends a bit on what you want to do with that and how much you want to flesh that out. But I think the the idea of we talk about vulnerable people a lot, just in public That's right. debate at the moment, and it's a kind of strange term because I don't know it feels a bit euphemistic or something. Like it's not entirely vulnerable to what exactly? Mm. Vulnerable on what basis exactly? What kind of vulnerability mm. are we talking? I mean, arguably every human being is vulnerable. That's right in some way or other. So what exactly are we talking about? And I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to set off on that footing because I think there are so many ambiguities involved. But one thing I want to observe is I suspect this is a kind of scheme that could only work in our politics with respect to certain kinds of people. And here we are talking about welfare payments. And for that reason, I think what Robert tells us is about the way in which welfare payments have been constructed in our political mythology mm -hmm. and the extent to which those who receive them are part of our political community. Mm. Now, in saying that, I know that there are, well, there is a broad range of welfare payments for all kinds of things. And we would have actually, if you dug down, you would find differential attitudes among the the general population towards different kinds of payments, right? So disability payment, I think, would have a, a different sort of attitude to, say, unemployment. Certain family benefits, I think, you'd have a different attitude towards, again, unemployment. I think unemployment is the one that defines the generalised attitude. That's right. And here I think I want to reference a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One is the persistent appearance in our public culture of the doll bludger. Mm. It's a favourite trope of tabloid media, obviously. These people exist, so I don't think we do ourselves any favours by pretending that they don't exist or that that is not a hazard of designing a welfare system. Mm -hmm. But we do ourselves a massive disservice when we make that the centre of our contemplation about the welfare system or about unemployment benefits, where we make the central meaning of unemployment benefits that which is liable to be rorted by doll bludgers who are out there everywhere, right? And this shows up in all kinds of things, you know, repeated government announcements of welfare crackdowns that will net some quite extraordinary amount, like, you know, one and a half billion dollars a year or whatever for mm. the budget 
which was in they fact part of the announcement of the initial RoboDebt scheme itself. Exactly. That over right? the course of the next four years, we estimate that 1.7 billion will be recouped from effectively welfare frauds. Right. Now, this is a fantastic announcement for a government to make because it is money that shows up in the budget and you can announce it in the budget that is free. No, you don't have to cut anything from anyone, not anyone who matters anyway. It's a bit like an efficiency dividend or something like that, except the people that it's targeting are people that we're saying should be targeted because they're cheap, right? Can this I reference succession here, Waleed? Sure. The benefit of it is, as was kind of chillingly said at the end of season two about sex workers and quote unquote immigrant labor that ended up dying on the uh, Waystar Royco cruise ships, no real person involved. Yeah, no real person involved. Right. Mm. The second thing I want to reference, which I think flows from this, is the bipartisan agreement for a long time now on not raising the unemployment benefit. Mm, That's right. So not raising job seeker and whatever it was called before that. This has been frozen in real terms, so tied only to inflation since the Howard era. And even John Howard has said, well, maybe that's gone on too long. <laughs> the, the business community says maybe that's gone on too long. That should be raised, partly because of the stimulatory effect that putting more money in the pockets of people who will definitely spend it has and the way in which that's good for business. Obviously, the social services community says the same thing. This is one of those rare areas where usually sworn enemies seem to be singing in unison. Mm. Right? They might disagree on details if you could get to them, but we don't really get to them. And yet, in election after election, both major parties come to this saying, we're not going to raise it. The closest you got was, I think, in 2019, and maybe it was true also in the last election, where... Labor would say, we have no plans to raise it, we will do a review. But a review is as strong as it goes. Now, that tells you that whatever the policy merits of raising the unemployment payment might be, and whatever the agreement amongst interested lobby groups might be, it's politically a non-starter. No party wants to be the one that says we're going to give more money to the unemployed. Why? Because, C.1, They are dull bludgers. That narrative has just taken hold so strongly. This is at the same time as we have a politics that has become increasingly concerned with the ideas of fairness, the haves and the have-nots and so on, right? Which you've seen play out a little bit in Labor's preparedness to take on superannuation tax concessions, albeit in a relatively modest way, but nonetheless a way that's triggered a huge backlash, particularly from the opposition. Um, You see this in the way... Labor wants to talk about its budget as being socially inflected. You see it even going back to 2014 in the way that the Abbott government ran aground immediately on its first budget because it was seen as fundamentally unfair, right? So we have this idea of fairness, economic unfairness, and economic inequality, which is not quite the same as class, but economic inequality is being something that is bubbling beneath our politics, and that bubbling seems to be getting bigger and bigger. So we have that. But no one, even in that context, is prepared to touch the unemployment payment. And that says to me that when we talk about fairness, what we mean is fairness for those who are within the political community as we deep down conceive of it, and that is people who work. Mm. It does not include people who don't. I say all this because for me that's the substrate that allows a robot to happen. Robo-debt is possible because in the end via a series of crude assumptions about who's actually affected by this and how this all works, all it is doing is visiting appropriate justice on the people who deserve it. Mm. And so a certain bureaucratic licence occurs in that or comes along with that and a certain preparedness to exempt oneself from having to deal with them in in a human way. It can be done via machines because, well, why wouldn't it? This is an automated process because it expresses a kind of automated attitude. And so we can have all the arguments about, did you know it was legal and so on and so forth. The more interesting question to me is, how is it conceivable? Exactly right. Exactly. Can I just, can I pick up on two very quick things and I want to bring our guest in because there's, yeah. I can feel we're at the precipice of, I think, precisely where it is we want to go and something that's very, very deep to our common life. Um, 
It's worth saying that the two horns of the robo-debt scheme, one was an automated or AI-driven assessment of someone's actual income by averaging out effectively what it is they've earned over the entire year and then comparing that with the Centrelink payments that they've received during those periods. Just something that makes no sense at all given the precarious nature of the work, the sporadic nature of the income that most people who would be receiving these Centrelink payments receive. So there's already something there. There's a kind of sterility to it uh, that showed a degree of disdain and a willful ignorance about the lived realities of most people's experiences. The second aspect, of course, of the robo-debt is the automatic generation of letters, which effectively presumed a sort of guilt. So this is the inconsistency that you've been caught in. Please, dem- please prove to us that you're not guilty of this debt. And then the final cruel barb in the tail of that was um, if we don't hear after the initial communication, which was by physical letter, if we don't hear within 21 days, uh, then a quote-unquote robo-debt would be generated and given to debt collectors. And so the testimony of many, many, many thousand people who have been affected by this was the first they knew about the debt that they had incurred was when the debt collector came knocking at their door. So there's all, I mean, what you've just described, Willie, is beautiful. There's already, they already need to exist within a class of people for whom this mode of callous, inhuman, almost contemptuous, one directional communication can take place. I think the only way, though, that that makes sense is if something fundamental had changed about the way that we understand unemployment slash poverty in the first place and the way that we've come to conceive of the moral status of welfare payments or the provision of welfare. Something we've talked about previously, probably going back a couple of years ago now, is the fundamental shift that happened in the 1970s, whereby Poverty went from being something that was a kind of accident of one's circumstances, a situation in life that anybody could fall into. Therefore, the forms of payment that we all contribute into the coffers of our common life through tax then become a kind of necessary safety net whereby we guarantee that those who are most vulnerable or most exposed to the contingencies of life aren't simply left, as John Rawls put it, to bear their own fate. Welfare becomes the way in which we solder ourselves to one another. We join arms within the conditions of a common life and refuse to allow people to simply be vulnerable to the accidents and contingencies of life. For that reason, by the way, is something of an expression of nationalism. Yes, yes. The connection between, I mean, we, we refer to the construction of the welfare state, I think, quite deliberately. In so many respects, in both Australia and the UK, welfare was a source of national pride and the way that we honor the sacrifices that were made under the conditions of the Great War. So there's, there's something about the national solidarity that gave birth to the commitment to welfare and therefore the willingness to shoulder relatively higher degrees of personal income tax. So I think there's something there that's really important. What fundamentally shifted then in the mid to late 70s was what I've written about elsewhere as being the moralization of poverty. So poverty then becomes something that's not an accident of life, the, you know, the result of contingent circumstances that could quite literally overtake anybody. But instead, poverty becomes the public demonstration of a lack of industriousness, a failure to work, the inability to contribute meaningfully to our national life. Uh, it's usually associated with forms of dissolution and maybe addiction, uh, uh, certain forms of laziness or free riding. In other words, it becomes a kind of public demonstration demonstration of a private or individual vice. And it's for that reason that even some of the crusading journalism of the late 70s and early 80s meant to shed a light on the quote-unquote scourge of urban poverty had the unintended consequence of making those who live in poverty in urban spaces seem like they were inhabitants of another planet. My God, these people don't even exist within the, within the continuum of our common life. These are people, in other words, for whom everything must be done. And because they are passive recipients then, rather than shared participants within our common life, uh, the openness, the ability, especially under conditions of, say, addiction, for rorting, for fraudulent claims, uh, is wide open. And I think you're right, Willie, that the degree of social and political opprobrium that has surrounded welfare ever since 
precisely because welfare is something that is given to people for whom everything must be done. We, we just can't shake that. It's one of the last vestiges, I think, of what can only be referred to as a politics of contempt. And then when you have, and this came out through the Royal Commission, when you then have active instructions that are given to bureaucrats, uh, to those who are implementing the robo-debt scheme and they're dealing with people who, got, who get in contact with Centrelink, to treat them with a degree of bluntness, to treat them uh, with the presumption that they are in fact fraudulent, that they have dishonestly procured these public funds. I think you're right. This is the sort of scheme that can only be implemented when there is a prior moral judgment that has been made about the relative moral worth of these people and, and the degree to which they don't have a place within our common life. Uh, the only way then of, I think, learning properly the lesson from RoboDead is to begin challenging precisely the point uh, that you've been making about the opprobrium that continues to surround unemployment and that continues to stick to welfare itself. This, I think, is ends up being a kind of litmus test, not just to our commitment to equality, but also to the health and consistency of our most fundamental democratic commitments to offer one another the care that we need at the various moments when we are most vulnerable through life. Let's get to our guest. I would say just one brief thing in mm. response to that. And that is, that's all fine, and I agree. But it requires displacing really quite a pervasive worldview, a more pervasive worldview than I think we admit, mm. with another one. And the question I cannot answer is what that worldview would be, what the source of it would be, what resources we have to generate it in an era of such... I don't know, radical epistemic fracture, can I mm -hmm. call it? Mm -hmm. We are not in a time where worldviews are coalescing around anything. We are in a time where worldviews are just getting further and further apart and share no common bases even. In some ways, the individualism of the worldview that has produced this is now reflected even in our responses to that individualism because they're highly individualized. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know quite what to do with that. Well, our guest, thankfully, is here to solve all the problems involved with the frame of the social contract and to unravel what really has been the better part of 80 years of decline of public commitment to the welfare state. Thank God we've got it because, quite frankly, Willie, it's just beyond really either of us or anyone else we've ever spoken to. But Kate Harrison Brennan is here to rescue. She's the director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much, Scott, and well aid. Uh, I'm being a little bit facetious here, <laughs> of course. Um, you've, you've heard us. We've sketched out a pretty broad terrain. We've tried to give a little bit of history to it rather than just uh, leaping on the favoured political pariah of this particular moment. Um, what haven't we touched on, Kate? Where, where would you like the conversation to go from here? I think, you know, as you've talked about this kind of latest manifestation of the problems of the state, it makes me think about how did the state view these people? And, you know, Scott, you referred to successions, no real person involved at all. And, Waleed, you've touched again on that notion that it would have to be a sense that the welfare recipients were other, that they were somehow uh, mere passive recipients of welfare and therefore only um, were dignified by this kind of AI automated robo-debt recovery scheme. It makes me think about what can we intuit or imply about the way that the state saw this as a scheme. And I think that's actually a really important thing to consider in that historical context of the state in which the welfare state is currently in Australia and what has led up to it. And so I would offer at this point, you know, we can learn from history that when a state develops schemes like this, that it is seeing the rest of society in a particular way. James C. Scott in his book, Seeing Like a State, speaks about the very kind of high modernist schemes that we use, particularly in developing countries, but also in developed countries that have a particular uh, number of similarities between them. They try to control disorder and the natural world by bringing an orderly architecture. They try to impose a sense of structure on things that aren't easily structured and to um, progress along a very teleological view of progress. And so we should at this point stand back and say, well, what does a robo-debt scheme 
imply to us about the way in which the Australian state was viewing people. And I think that's a very worthwhile line of inquiry. It is, it is interesting, Kate. We've talked about this a few times on the shows before, that one of the faulty visions of politics that Aristotle described was the conception of the people as being more or less raw materials upon which the artist or the aesthete could simply impose their will with a minimal degree of resistance, or at least simply the resistance of the material objects themselves. But the idea is, is that the people could be dissolved and remade into another. People could be regarded as problems and then solved by the most efficient means possible. And Aristotle was, we have a word for that. He referred to it as despotism. Uh, we might refer to it perhaps as fascism in some respects, but also this is, this is a bureaucratic conception of the state, which only works if there's a degree of distance between the active agent here, the bureaucracy, and the people upon whom that action is being inflicted or exacted. Uh, is it too easy to say, is it too trite now, a solution to say that these kinds of provisions of meaningful services really must be closer and closer and closer to the point of contact with the, in other words, things must be far more local and responsive to where people in fact are, rather than simply administered in such a sterile or contemptuous way. It's not trite at all. I think what it points us to, however, is that the robo-debt scheme was kind of a trope of mm. this current form of the welfare state. I mean, something that Hilary Cotton has written about beautifully as she has described the kind of evolution of the welfare state, particularly in Britain and is able to describe in quite a lot of detail the way in which welfare and delivery of services is done with very little regard for the real people, often down the road or you know, worst in many suburbs or villages away, who are actually being served by these programs. And so it gets to a point where you'd have to say, ultimately, what would be best is if we're able to remake relationships within society and start far closer to the people. I think there is, however, a natural series of compromises that need to take place in order to reach the scale of kind of welfare provision. And I guess that's one of the questions to be asked is what is the nature of that compromise that needs to be made and um, how might we be able to provide the kind of social safety net that many of us would expect to have in society while retaining fundamental values perhaps of kind of decency and dignity. Can I just ask what exactly we're talking about there though? So... Mm. Are we talking about just different amounts of cash? Are we talking about the way in which these services are provided? Which services exactly? Like, I feel like we can theorise about providing services closer to the ground or closer to the people or whatever. But in the context of a payment for an unemployment benefit, I'm not entirely sure what difference that makes or what, what concrete difference you would observe in that. So I think what's important to say there is in trying to recoup supposed debts, this is merely a trope of a type of welfare state that we currently have in Australia and in many other countries around the world, I can think of the UK and others, um, a welfare state in which policies are made at 10 steps removed, where services are delivered often with no real person involved at the end. And it's when you actually have that as a machinery of government, as a way of seeing the state, that's how eventually you can get to a point of having something like a compliance scheme that we've seen dubbed as robo-debt being brought into being and seen as a kind of rational measure uh, for dealing with what is, in essence, a budget problem. Something It becomes quite plausible to have AI so deeply involved in creating efficiencies in government because this is such a long-run trajectory away from people and their real needs, their real relationships and what they value, that it becomes plausible in the end in big bureaucratic structures to have robo-debt. So can I, can I ask the two of you something? And this is something that I, I'll confess I really struggle with. Uh, I mean, I have certain moral convictions, but I'm really reluctant to bring those to bear on, on this kind of actual policy discussion. Um, you know, one of the things that robo-debt was heralded for doing was bringing a high degree of efficiency to, to a purported problem. And efficiency, including from the two of us, Willie, can get severely criticized in many of these. I mean, we efficiency in meaning-laden institutions, whether it be the university or government, um, can often be really dangerous. 
But at the same time, we don't really want, there's no virtue in waste. Let me just put it that way. Yes. It's now, an important point to make, by the way. Yes. So, so that, that's one thing I struggle with. I, I, I don't like efficiency being a kind of regulative tool because that means a certain accounting for time and a certain accounting for resources when occasionally what is genuinely required is more time <laughs> or differently allocated resources. Uh, my, uh, my sister-in-law is, is a GP and the efficiency requirement in terms of turnover of patients uh, in and out of the surgery is, is actively working against her sense of her own vocation of what it means to be a GP. So it's the demonization of efficiency and the, and the valorization of waste that I, I guess I'm concerned about. On the other hand of that, on the other horn of this particular dilemma, serious steps need to be taken to reaffirm public trust, public confidence in the welfare system with each new generation. If it's simply presumed upon, then it, it falls foul of the attempts on the part of various political parties or nefarious actors to exploit the social opprobrium surrounding unemployment that we talked about previously. So things need to be done to try to reassure the public that public, valuable public monies aren't simply being you know, poured down the drain or being given to people who don't need them or who are in fact procuring them fraudulently. I don't think there's necessarily a virtue in waste, but I don't want efficiency to be a regulative idea. I don't want there to be a presumption that people who are on unemployment are on unemployment because they are too lazy to get a job or receiving certain public funds fraudulently. But at the same time, there do need to be public demonstrations, almost rituals <laughs> that try to restore, that try to give the public a proper sense of faith that public funds are in fact being distributed properly. You know what you're touching on is this is the same point that defenders of our asylum seeker policy, especially in the Howard era, would make. Yeah. Was that we're running high immigration, multiculturalism is something that is now happening, although John Howard was clearly a skeptic at the very least, probably a critic of multiculturalism. And the only way this works is if the public believes that the system that is facilitating this is robust. Mm, it's true. Yeah. And that we're in control. Therefore, we come down hard on asylum seeker boats yeah. because without that, you'll find the whole society falls apart in the face of immigration, especially quite high levels of immigration. Now, I always found that an interesting argument. Because I think in the end, the argument's true. I don't think what follows from that is that the suite of policies that were used to that effect no, that's right. were the right policies. But the overall argument, whether you like it or not, I think has a kind of pragmatic truth about it. And here, I think you're making a similar argument with respect to the use of money. But in both cases, the reason that argument applies is that we are talking about people that in some degree we don't fully see as us. Yeah. In the case of true. asylum seekers, that's obviously true. They're not of us. They're foreign nationals, right? In the case of welfare recipients, it's the fear that they may have exempted themselves from the norms of behaviour that constitute us. That is a kind of honesty with respect to one another and the accessing of public funds. So either way, any way you cut it, and I'm, I'm not saying your argument's wrong, by the way, Scott, but it does... Any way you cut it, you run into this question, which is one of political boundary drawing in a certain sense of the extent and the reach of our solidarities. To complicate though, that further, though, you'd have to look at a scheme like um, RoboDebt and say, in the end, even by its own metrics, it was inefficient. Whether it was yes. insufficiently legal, it has meant that the kind of need for remedy has cost you know, at least a third of what it promised to recoup for the government. And so I think that's a starting point. And beyond that, to say that there is something inherently performative about these types of measures. It's not about efficiency on any real metric. True efficiency would have a regulatory principle of you know, avoiding humiliation for people. We know that for people to engage fully in society and, and lead meaningful lives, that it's important to lead lives of, be able to lead a life with a sense of decency and to be able to go about without shame. I mean, that's uh, fundamental. So 
when the state interacts with people, when it sees people in this way, that they are you know, people to be kept in compliance, to be treated in a way that is degrading, uh, to be, you know, to be regulated in a way that giving them a sense of shame is actually an appropriate kind of externality that uh, that is inherently, you know, ineffective because that won't lead to people taking a fuller role in society or being able to uh, exercise agency in a way that would lead them to kind of tackle the entrenched disadvantage that they might find themselves within. Unless you presume these are the kind of people that won't participate fully in society anyway. And that, that's kind of the point that I, I guess I was making at the start, is once a particular mythology gathers around a group of people, then these sorts of things become not merely licensed but actually rational. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. I think that's undisputable. I think that's, it's also really genuinely problematic I don't think there's any solution to that apart from proximity. Or I mean, leadership. Or leadership. I mean, I think, for example, or, or, or leadership. Yeah. if you found a political party that was prepared to have a fight on those terms and could find the way to do it, then I think you could shift it. But, so that, also joined it, but that also joined it into another larger narrative. That's it. Yeah. Isn't it? Okay, so, so can I ask the two of you then? I raise the issue of, of duty of care. I do see care as being an active positive democratic principle. I see care as being something that is only able to be shown by particular agents within a common political community. I think there are some bodies that are simply incapable of care, whether it be due to distance, due to size, uh, due to the fact of it being a blunt instrument, whatever. Before we get to care, however, can we agree on, on a kind of baseline of non-humiliation I think, Kate, the, the, the point that you raised before about treating some, I mean, there is a kind of inherent inefficiency of treating some people as at very best problems to be solved or problems to be managed or potential drains on our common life to be minimized. There's something about that that is so, that is so actively degrading that the idea that they then could in some way be seen as, much less treated as, uh, full fellow participants within the common life of a moral community, which I take a democracy as attempting to be. Um, there's something in that that's so counterproductive that even when we pat ourselves on the back and chest beat about our own relative productivity, there's something about that that nonetheless unites us, as Rousseau once put it, in a state of mutual immiseration. Because in the end, we really do need one another in order to be able to live together and well and in a matter that is democratically defensible. Can we at least agree on a kind of fundamental principle of non-humiliation in the implementation of these kinds of schemes? Yep. Yes. That's where it then leads us to is to say, well, what is the narrative about how we need one another? And I think that's the kind of the political moment in which we find ourselves now in Australia that brings together both the leadership and the ability to tell a different narrative. You know, during the pandemic, we've all had a heightened awareness of the need for one another and our interconnectedness. We've no doubt all chosen different ways of moving forward with that, whether it's you know, just keeping at a base level of an understanding of how a virus moves within a community or whether we've actually allowed ourselves to think about that deep interconnectedness that runs throughout society. But that's the that's the opportunity and the challenge right now, I think, is to is to think through, you know, at its deepest level, what do we owe each other? And the robo-debt crisis and scandal points us to deep defects in what we are uh, what we've accepted as a society, something that is inherently non-productive as a way of interacting with the most vulnerable people in society and um, tells us something about a state and how it would treat any of us, not just the most vulnerable, were there the chance. It's great that you mentioned COVID there, mm. Kate, because I suppose that's the thing that I found most instructive here. When COVID arrived, we saw those unbelievable images of just endless queues of people out the front of Centrelink who were suddenly overnight without work, right? And I remember thinking about it at that time and having conversations with people, probably even on air, about whether or not this would change our attitude to welfare because suddenly we would see ourselves 
in those people who need welfare payments, right? That this could happen to anyone. It became a manifest reality. And yet it hasn't really shifted anything, has it? So I wonder if rather than providing an opportunity to reframe things or to develop a new narrative, COVID has denied that opportunity because it's come to be seen as the ultimate exception, the thing that only entrenches our view of what normal life would actually look like, that it takes something like a pandemic to make me unemployed. But absent a pandemic, you really must be stuffing something up if you're in that situation. Yes, that's a, it's so hard-hitting, isn't it, when you think like that? Um, that sense that it, it was the ultimate state of exception. And yet, you know, there's images that we saw at the time of people queuing up around the corner and having to go back day after day to be able to access support. You know, he spoke to a long-running failure, actually, a failure in, in provision of care by the state that has been allowed to continue because most people who experience that day in and day out don't have the social capital, the the credentials, whatever you want to call it, to be able to actually effectively raise their voice and um, and get something to change. So, Waleed, sorry, that was just, I mean, I feel almost struck dumb. You, you, you've answered so many questions, I think, that I had about why was it that the pandemic not the equivalent of our second world war? Why did it not produce the same social, the same enduring sense of social solidarity? It was because of the sheer singularity of the event itself. It would take something of a seismic and almost global character in order to knock me off my plans for life. And something not made by us. A war is made by us. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, I mean, you can argue the pandemic was as well because, well, you know, anyway. the generation of diseases and zoonotic diseases and all that. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. Can I, um, I feel like, uh, I feel I'm conscious bound to say this because I, I also know that oftentimes Centrelink and bureaucracies more generally and public servants often get a bad name. Um, I'm coming up to the 20th anniversary of a moment in my life that was characterized, I don't want to go into details, but it was characterized by utter destitution. Um, I only had recourse for something kind of fundamental to Centrelink. And if I had met a hole-punching, button-pressing, indifferent worker on the other side of the desk who glanced said, I know what this looks like, and then effectively had me on my way. The results would have been catastrophic. Can I just say, I met nothing of the kind. The person with whom I had to do over the course of about six weeks was the most humane, attentive. You know those moments when you have interactions with people and you know that their their gaze is nowhere else, when they're looking at you you are sitting in the full light of a sense of a shared humanity. And, um, and that, that, was, that for me was extraordinarily instructive. There's no sense that this person had nothing better to do. There was no sense that they had reached a lull in their schedule or had somehow simply recently had a really benevolent supervisor who was giving them a bit more time with clients. I, I guess I just felt I wanted to say that The opportunities for humanity and goodness in moments of genuine crisis, I mean, there is a vocation behind this that has the ability to restore one's faith in the possibility of living together well. You know, I I have many friends who are public servants and they live in conditions of crisis, just moving from what feels like one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh, The opportunity for humanity and just goodness and mercy, I think, is such that I've, I've never quite been able to shake the sense of a high moral vocation being attached to the task of being a public servant in, in this sort of context. And it's such a beautiful point you'd make, Scott. I think ultimately you know, that experience that you had, and I've got to say I had one last night with our daughter up at emergency department um, and the care that we received from everybody from the front doors through to paediatrics and back out was just exceptional. 
makes me think actually if the state has any duty, it is to see in a way that enables all of us to be attentive to one another, hmm. to actually enable us to, its duty of care is, is to see the relationships around people, to make policies assuming that people want to relate to one another, that we want to have families and communities of reciprocity and solidarity to actually design that in, whether it's for a small local government program or a very large scheme, and not to do it in a way that enforces structure where we know that humans flourish without it. Mm. Wow. Is that possible in a politics that is axiomatically conflictual and antagonistic? I think it is when you actually, you know, it goes right back to the very beginning of this episode where you design the outset, not just acknowledging the kind of plurality of beliefs and communities, but actually respecting them, um, where you take into deep consideration that there'll be many different people with many different things that they value and you therefore place the relationships at the heart of the way you think about the world. Um, it will require you know, an evolution in how we think about the welfare state. It will require a new way of doing government policy that enables consultation uh, with people who will be deeply affected by the policies at hand. But it is possible, and I think we have the imagination to do it. I mean, I doesn't, but we do. It is, it is worth pointing out, Waleed, that commitment to public housing, commitment to the construction of public housing, and the commitment to the formation of the NHS in the wake, in the immediate decade following the Second World War, fundamentally remade the lines of British party politics. Um, so it is, it is in fact possible that instead of parties being the administrators of certain forms of welfare and therefore being susceptible to, uh, to portraying welfare along ideological lines, uh, a, a proper reconception of what it is that we owe one another and of the state's duty of care uh, if done rightly in the hands of a political virtuoso, <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. could well have the effect of bringing, uh, forming possibilities whereby uh, parties can uh, see ground in common, see shared commitments uh, that need not, or that can fall outside of uh, the usual party political context. Agreed. But that was in the aftermath of the war. Yeah, that's right. Which is a massive yes, solidarity is. making event. Yes, it is. Well, it's an event that liberates the imagination, let me put it that way. It does other horrible things, but it also suspends certain things so that the imagination can go elsewhere. Yeah, but it makes a certain national solidarity. It thickens that national solidarity in a way that few other things do. Hence Ulrich Beck's great comment that if you want world peace, start a war with Marx. (laughs) Yeah. Kate, we gave you the task of solving everything. I have to say you got a lot closer than I was expecting you'd be able to. So well done to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. Kate Harrison-Brennan is the Director of Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is at an end. And we'll see you next week with something that I think should be a lot more fun at the very least. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.